Well, good morning, everyone. So thank you. Isn't that great? So I noticed I'm looking up there and I titled my message, What Are You Looking For? And I realized, you know, for you grammar majors, I ended the sentence in a preposition. You are not supposed to do that. My mom is an English teacher. You are not supposed to end the sentence in a preposition, right? You learned that? So I just totally blew through English Grammar 101, and I apologize for that. I've titled uh, my message today, What Are You Looking For? Um, Okay, there's a big game this weekend, right? Um, One of my colleagues this week uh, tried tried to put me right in the middle of this whole thing, and I'm from Southern California, and and they said, so are you, a, and this is in a public setting, are you a, a Vikings fan or a Packers fan? And I'm like, so okay, I need to hear from you guys, Vikings fan. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Packers fans. Yeah. I don't know, that's, that's pretty close. I think this is a, this is a house divided. So I, I do come from Los Angeles, so I was a Rams fan last year, but here's the thing. Sorry about that, you guys. Here's the thing. I, I have been a lifelong Broncos fan. So growing up in the Pacific Northwest, yeah, back when I was a kid, the Seahawks didn't give us anything to root for, really. And uh, so I looked a little further east, and so I'm a Broncos fan. I am so excited that Russell Wilson is in the house this year. So Russell's been one of my favorite quarterbacks. We'll see. Last year was a pretty rough year. So big game this Sunday. Uh, Go Vikings, go Packers, right? I'm just going to stay out of this altogether. Somebody's going to win, I can tell you that. I love fall. Fall is my favorite time of season, uh, season of the year. I am really excited to be here in Minnesota this fall. In Southern California, we don't get much of a fall. What happens in Southern California during the fall is it gets hotter. So September's hot, October's hot, November's hot. And then whatever trees might have leaves, they just die and fall off. Anybody from Southern California here? All right, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Sacramento, Josh from Sacramento. It just gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and then, you know, everything dies. And then, you know, then it's like 75 degrees for the rest of the year. So I I guess whatever we lose in fall, we make up for in January and February, right? Fall is my favorite time of season. It's a time of change. We look forward to it. We look forward to the the change of seasons. We look forward to the change of trees as they turn uh, all kinds of colors. And I have spent some time in the Midwest, and so I know what that, I know what that looks like. This the beauty of the change of seasons. It's also a time of life when we're thinking about change at the beginning of an academic year. Uh, probably a lot of things going on in each of your minds, right? Uh, maybe you're not sure if you should change your major. Uh, I've had two kids graduate from college, and between the two of them, we've had a lot of different majors in our household. Maybe you're in a relationship, you're not sure if you should change. Um, Maybe you're moving into adulthood. Maybe you're getting ready to graduate in December or May, and it feels like it's coming really fast, right? And maybe you're not sure if you're ready for the change uh, that's coming. Maybe you're feeling a little stuck. Uh, Someone a number of years ago gave me a book, and it was just titled, Are You Stuck? And I thought, well, 
title caught my attention, and, uh, and, the, and the book described kind of where I was in life. I was, I was stuck, and I needed to move out and, and do something different, do something, change what was going on. This morning, we're going to meet a group of friends of Jesus who were stuck. Uh, you might say they were religiously stuck. You might say they were spiritually stuck. Um, they were definitely stuck in tradition. They couldn't change. Maybe they wouldn't change. And Jesus challenged them in a way that not just confronted some some things in their own life, but it, it turned all of human history upside down. So, uh, some of you remember from physics class, right? Uh, who, everybody taking physics here? Everybody physics, like physics, high school physics, maybe physics here. I stopped physics in high school. I never took another physics class after high school. I was done with that, but I did learn one thing. There we go. I'm thankful for you who continued in physics because that's what makes, you know, the world go round, right? So Newton's first law of motion, it's uh, also called the law of inertia. This is one of the few things that I remember from my physics class. I also remember the bridge that I built in physics class that, that broke under like five pounds of weight. Yeah, that, that didn't go well. Newton's first law of physics, we're going to do a little quiz here, okay? Newton's first law of physics, and I want you to fill in the blank here. So an object at... Thank you. Hey, this is great. Object at rest stays at rest. And an object in motion stays in motion. until what? Yeah, you got it. See, so you guys learned something from high school physics. Um, good job. You get an A for the day. Well, you can take that first law of, of the law of inertia, what, what Newton described and defined as the law of inertia, and you can apply that to a spiritual law in our life. And I'm going to state it this way. People at rest spiritually stay at rest. People who think they've figured it out spiritually tend to continue living that way until acted upon by an outside force. I know this from my own life. I know this from friends. We get in a rut. We think we've got it figured out. We don't go any further in our spiritual life. And then something happens. Sometimes it's a difficult situation in your life. Sometimes it's a tragedy. Um, sometimes it's a difficult relational situation. All kinds of things that God will use to be that thing that interrupts your life and that thing that uh, causes you to change. I want to look at a passage of Scripture today. This is one of my favorite passages, John chapter 6. Uh, verses 35, I'm sorry, John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35, and it should be on the screens behind you. I'm going to read this. So you have to understand, this, is, this passage of Scripture falls kind of right in the middle of the entire chapter of, of John 6. It begins with the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and the chapter ends with a little statement that says, after this Many disciples left Jesus and no longer followed him. I think, what on earth just happened? There's this miracle. People come and they show up, and there's the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And by the end of the chapter, all these people that have followed Jesus uh, 
have simply just gotten up and left, and they no longer followed him. And so it's important for us as we think about our spiritual lives, as we think about um, what is happening in our life, that we don't end up in the same place as some of those dis- disciples. They call the, John calls them disciples, so they were followers of Jesus to some degree. I mean, they certainly experienced the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And then they find themselves in this place where they're no longer following Jesus. And you think, that can't happen to me. And I'll tell you from experience, from friends that I have, that it can happen. Let me read this passage, verses 25 to 35. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I think uh, that statement's a little bit like, Rabbi, when did you get here? This is how Jesus answers the questions. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. There's some mixing of some metaphors in this passage, right? I mean, obviously, the people that have just had the experience, the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, they're thinking about bread. I'm hungry, give me bread, Jesus. And he's, of course, pushing them to change their whole view. There are three kinds of people in this chapter that I want to draw attention to, and I think as you hear what I'm going to share about these three different kinds of people, I can tell you I have been each one of these people at different times in my life, and probably all three together at any different, you know, any different time in my life. Uh, okay, there are the consumers. There are people who just want to follow Jesus so that he meets their basic needs. You ever been in that place where you just think, Jesus, just like, just pay my tuition bill, just make sure there's groceries in my cabinet, make sure there's gas in my car. California, that means a lot. When gas is $6.50 a gallon, I'm thinking I can go one mile to visit somebody today. So there's the basic, just Jesus, just meet my basic needs, right? <clears throat> then there are the competitors, and I call these the, uh, the religious who are competing for the moral prize. Um, for those of us in this room that like to live disciplined lives, you know, we can find ourselves like, yeah, we can do this, we can, uh, we can make God happy with the way we live. And then there are the confrontational 
Uh, these are the skeptics who just never have enough evidence uh, to give over their lives in full to Jesus. So let's look at each one of these. So in verse 25, <clears throat> these are the consumers. Uh, Jesus, uh, they, they say this to Jesus, Rabbi, when did you get here? So it seems like a pretty, uh, pretty mundane question, right? When did you get here, Jesus, right? I think what they're saying is, when did you get here? Because you just multiplied the loaves and fishes, which was great. You filled our stomachs. We benefited from that, and you left. You didn't tell us where you're going. You didn't tell us when you're going to get there. It sounds like your parents, right? You didn't tell me where you're going to get home. You left. When did you get here, Jesus? And Jesus just flatly calls them out on this, right? He says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Every one of us has been a consumer in this way. We've had that attitude. Jesus just, you know, we don't have to go very far, Jesus. Um, just, just meet my needs. Um, oh, the rabbit's foot in the pocket. You know, Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do, and you kind of do your part, and we'll be, we'll be good. The competitors, um, verse 28, this is the next group of people, says, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Um, I took a little bit of Greek uh, back when I went through seminary, and this was, you know, when you go back and you look in the, the, the original text, this is one of those verses that just doesn't get translated very well into English. What it literally says is, what must we do to work the works God requires? I mean, these people are so committed to a life of moral righteousness, and we wouldn't criticize any of them in today's world for their, you know, they're good people. These people are on top of it. They are not blowing up things in the world. They are living a moral life, and on top of that, they're competing with people to live the best moral life because they've been taught that their salvation depends on the way that they live their life, this pursuit of self-righteous moralism. And you think, what is wrong with that? I mean, wouldn't we want a few more of those kinds of people in today's world? I am not suggesting that we walk away from a genuine life of genuine moral living. What I'm suggesting is that's not what Jesus is fundamentally after in this verse. When they say, what must we do to work the works God requires, what they're saying is, give us the formula, tell us what we need to know, tell us what we need to do <clears throat> to get right with God. And I love this passage because this is the moment where Jesus turns everything, all of human history, upside down. And you read over it, <clears throat> you might read over it quickly, but he says this, the work, now if you, understand, if you look at the, word, the passage right before, they say, what are the works, plural? And Jesus answers them with one word. He says, the work, singular, <clears throat> the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This was Jesus's opportunity to tell them to be good people. This was his opportunity to tell them to go out and keep doing what you're doing and everything's going to be right 
with God. There's a little nuance in this verse that I love. And he says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You see that little nuance? He's not saying the work that you're supposed to do. He's saying the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. What does that tell me? I can't on my own conjure up enough faith to be in proper relationship with God the way he wants with Jesus. So Paul even talks about that in the book of Ephesians, that even the faith that we have is a free gift of God. Third group of people are these confrontational people. These are the skeptics. I was here, and I know what it means to be a skeptic. I know what it means to answer the, to ask the toughest, toughest questions. And what I would recommend and and ask of each of you this morning, if you are asking tough questions, keep asking tough questions. Don't settle. Ask the tough questions. But also keep an open heart and an open mind to how God is speaking to you. Don't keep them out on the margins. Verse 30, another group of people says to this, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, of course, they just saw the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, and so they are challenging Jesus to perform another miracle. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is this, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, I want to talk about that word life for a minute, because in the English translation, we just get the word life, right? <clears throat> what does that mean? In the Greek, uh, the original languages of the New Testament, uh, there are three words for the word life, and you'll recognize these. So the first word is uh, the word bios, from which we get the word biology, right? This is the uh, beating of the heart kind of life. Uh, our stomachs are eating kind of all the everything that you see going on in the world around you that's living. That's the word bios. The second word that's used in the New Testament for life is the word suke, from which we get the word psychology, right? This is the life of the soul. This is the life of the mind. This is the life of our, of our emotions and all of that. And Jesus uses not the word bios or not the word suke. He uses the third word for life in the New Testament, which is the word zoe. Some people have the name zoe. Z-O-E is the word that Jesus uses. The word zoe means full, complete, spiritual, physical, mental, holistic life with God. So when he says that the work for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's using the word zoe. He's not using the word bios. He's not using the word suke. He's using a bigger word, zoe, which covers all of that. And it refers to the spiritual life that we experience when we're in proper relationship with God. Jesus is also referring back to a passage that was written hundreds of years before in the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 55, um, the first two verses says this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. This is the invitation that Jesus is offering. This is the prophet Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah who will offer this kind of life to all of us. So I've been in relationship with Jesus for a long time now. And what I'll say to you, uh, students and friends, is that there's still work to be done. There are still days where I think, boy, if Jesus would just, and if he would just meet my basic needs, however you define your basic needs, uh, I mean, we'll be good with each other, Jesus. There are times where um, I'm just thinking, uh, boy, can't I just be a good enough person? Can't I just try harder? Um, this disciplined life of moralistic pursuits, doesn't that count for anything, Jesus, really? Um, and sometimes I have deep times of skepticism, uh, moments where I think, does it really all add up? Does this, does this work? Is this, what about other options out there? So where are you this morning? Do you think and reflect in your hearts? Where, where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Are you just thinking, you know, Jesus, meet my needs and we're good? Are you thinking... Man, I have been working so hard since I was a young boy or young girl to do everything right. And maybe some of you are going through this time at Northwestern and you're wrestling with some deep skepticism and some questions about, about God and Jesus and how does this all fit together. And I, I hope you know that this is a place for you to wrestle with those questions. Don't, don't try to set them aside, wrestle with them, but wrestle with them with an open heart. Wrestle with them with an open mind. Wrestle with them with your peers and with your faculty and friends on campus. There isn't any question that I've had, and I, I will, I think I've shared with some of you my own faith journey, I, I did not come to faith in Christ until my freshman year at the University of Michigan. And I, I had serious doubts about the Christian faith. I had serious doubts that there was a, a God who loved me, that, that knew me personally, that took an interest in my life. I had serious doubts about that. So as you think about what Jesus is offering in this passage, he's offering life to you and to me. He's offering the gift of life. He does care about your basic needs. He does care about our world of our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings. But he cares about a lot more than that. He cares about relationship and 
drawing us into a, a relationship with him where we experience the fullness. And elsewhere in the, chapter, in the book of John, uh, John talks about the fullness of Christ. And this is the life that Jesus op- offers us. <clears throat> when Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, he's calling us to yield our heart and our mind and our soul, our desires, our motives, our interests, our thoughts, our attitudes, our worldview, our relationships, and our sense of calling and purpose. He's calling us to yield all of that to him. Don't settle for a thin slice of religious bread baked in your personal oven of self-interest and self-gain. And I'm saying that to me. I'm saying that to all of us, but I'm saying that to me. Don't settle. Let's take just a few moments, and I'd like to ask each of us just to think about where we are in our relationship with Jesus. Are we... Are you struggling with that consumer attitude? Are you just living a religiously competitive life? Are you uh, skeptic? Well, Father, um, thank you that you call each of us into the intimacy of a relationship with you that goes far beyond anything that we could hope for or imagine. Lord, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your holy word, the scriptures. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. Thank you that you journey with us through life with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, there is nowhere where we can go in this world where we are not in your presence. Lord, I pray for my friends today and I pray for myself. I pray for each one of us that that we would that we would press into what it, it means to experience the life that you have to offer us. Help us not to settle for it's a transactional relationship with you where uh, we just expect you to meet our needs. Help us not to settle for just a good life, peaceful. Lord, help us to be committed to following you wherever you would take us in this side of heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for each student and the sound of my voice here today. I pray that you would speak to them uh, throughout today, throughout this semester, throughout this year. And we offer this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.